This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In hopes of solving murders, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation is distributing playing cards. These cold case decks are available to prisoners in the state. The Five of Spades features Tommy Kinslow, his round face framed by glasses. It says he was 20, and after he got off work one night in 2005, somebody killed him. His mom, Pam, found out when she saw flashing emergency lights from her window in Colorado Springs and a body lying on Constitution Avenue. He was a big boy, and I I just could tell that that was him. And so me and my husband, after he got up, we ran out, and the paramedics stopped us and told us that there was nothing they could do, that he had been shot, which was another big shock because not only had he was he dead but he had been murdered my husband put his arms around me and told me it would be okay and we both knew it was never going to be okay again Tommy Kinslow's is among the state's nearly 1700 unsolved murder or missing persons cases since introducing the cards about a year ago the CBI has received a few tips and wants to add more decks with more faces The Bureau's Audrey Simpkins joins me, and welcome to the program. Thank you. Why cards, and why distribute them in prisons? Why is that the avenue you chose? So the cards were um, something that we had seen happen in other states across the country and felt like this was something we wanted to try out in Colorado um, and just see if we could make a difference in some of these cases that way. Um, We do have a database that's available to the public now through the Internet, so we're already getting that information out to the Internet a bit. And so the cards was a way for us to tap into those incarcerated populations, hoping maybe they would know something or be willing to talk today about a case from years ago. And why is that a population to target? Uh, Because you think that these people might have been involved in those crimes themselves or heard other inmates talk about them? We always look with cold cases. Our hope with the cold cases is that um, with the passage of time, relationships will change. And we're hoping that the folks that travel in those circles may have heard something, even if they weren't a part of it um, when it occurred. And maybe something in their situation has changed and they're willing to speak about it today. Is this about people angling for a plea deal? In other words, they might see their victim on a card and then think, well, gosh, if I come forward or if I uh, tell someone else about this, you know, maybe my sentence could be reduced or something. I mean, certainly that could be what they're thinking. Um, From our perspective um, in the law enforcement community, we're really just hoping for information and then we'll corroborate it however we can. All right. You said that you look to other states that have done this. Have they solved crimes by distributing playing cards like this? Other states have been successful in solving crimes. So there's been several cases that have been solved as a result. I think it's a little more than 10 um, across the country for the different agencies that have used the program. A little more than 10. And what about in Colorado? What kind of response have you gotten in about the year that these have been circulating? In Colorado, the the phone is still ringing. And so um, that's good for us to know that the inmates are looking at the cards, they're reviewing the, the information on the cards and making the calls. We haven't received that golden nugget of information yet um, with the program, but we're hopeful it will come in time as we continue to keep the program moving forward. So the fact that the phone's ringing for us is encouraging. So there are tips coming through. Is it possible that board inmates could phone in tips that aren't valid? 
Certainly. Anytime you open up a tip line um, or you request information from the public, you always have the possibility that information that's not related to your cases could come forward. And so when you stand up something like this, you have to be prepared to follow up and and vet each one that comes in, knowing that there might be a lot of, of vetting to do before you get that golden nugget. But that vetting you think is worth it because of the potential for the golden nugget, which has been seen in other states. I do think it's worth it. So you've brought several decks in with you, and there are several decks circulating. You're hoping to print more. I'm looking at the Seven of Hearts, Lucas Gonzalez, a 19-year-old white male. And uh, this is a question of an unsolved homicide from 1995. How do you go about choosing which cases to put on the cards? Because there are many more cases than cards. There are many more cases than cards. Um, And so really, we look to uh, local law enforcement in Colorado, um, knowing that we're targeting kind of the incarcerated populations here, and really seeking their insight and input on what cases could benefit the most from being in that type of a a area. So you consult local law enforcement and say, which which ones do you think might most benefit from this? We do. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, the 10th anniversary of Tommy Kinslow's death, whom we mentioned in the introduction, was just a few weeks ago. Uh, His mom, Pam, said that uh, there was a get-together for him and that her pain years later comes from the idea of imagining that her son might have been a teacher today and might have had children and uh, that she sees his friends today and imagine imagines what those friendships might look like today. Um, I want to talk more broadly about cold cases and how many of them are solved from year to year, given that there are so many in Colorado. You know, as far as um, solvability, I think when when anyone's working these cases, it really does take a long period of time and you're vetting a lots of different pieces of information and hoping that, that you can piece things together. So um, on an average, not not a ton are solved. You're not going to see high numbers, hundreds. You might see four, five, six um, cases be solved. But there's so much that goes into the the investigating and the prosecuting of those cases, knowing that so much time has passed. And you have a lot of ground to cover before you can even get it in front of a, a, a courtroom and a prosecutor. So then those numbers you are giving us, is that a year, four to five a year? About probably, I would say, is All about right. what we see. Is it fair to say that the vast majority of cold cases probably will never be solved? Well, I hate to say never. Never's a pretty strong word, and we never know what, what information might come in today or tomorrow that might bring resolution to a case. So um, I think what's important to remember is that there are a lot of cases out there, and there are a lot of investigating agencies who have detectives assigned to these cases that are tenacious and that are going to continue working through these cases. Here's the Eight of Hearts, which is a double unsolved homicide of Stephanie Hart and Nicholas Kunselman. This took place in 2000 in Littleton, Colorado. How do these decks make it into the inmates' hands? Are they sort of forced to play with them, or is it something that they can buy at the commissary, or what? No, it's actually a program that we've actually been able to to put in place um, with no money from the inmates actually at all. So um, we work with the local Department of Corrections here in Colorado and the local detention facilities, um, look at what their um, numbers are as far as how many inmates they have, and then we work to get the an appropriate number of decks pushed their way. The idea with this program is not one deck per inmate. Um, we want the cards to continue on for a long period of time, so we make them available in the day rooms, we make them available in the pods. Some agents are, are making them available for 
checkout. So it doesn't cost the inmates anything to play with them. Um, and, and we're grateful that the agencies have agreed to put cards in the decks. And we're grateful that the agencies have agreed to, to utilize them. And uh, as you say, a, a way of circulating them in front of many, many inmates uh, who come in and out of prisons, of course, as we know as well. I guess just to wrap up, have you been present when a cold case has been solved and when a family has learned I of, have. of that? Yeah, just to share share with us what that's like. You know, I think you work uh, on any of these cases for a long period of time, and I think the agency really wants to – you want to bring that family resolution um, in a in a terrible way. And so you'll work um, day and night tirelessly until you can – can put the pieces together. And when you can finally tell them that you've solved it and that you know who is responsible for the death of their loved one, that's a, it's a great feeling. Um, and then there's still another step. Then we have to go through that prosecution. So um, it's just kind of the beginning, really, right. telling them that we've resolved the case. And now we have to kind of put all the wheels in motion. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Audrey Simkins is an analyst with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. At CPRnews.org, you can see the five of spades featuring Tommy Kinslow. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Many bills die at the state capitol every year, but that doesn't mean they're gone forever. Lawmakers bring them back, and some people have dubbed them zombie bills. The legislative session starts next month, and before that, we'll be speaking with lawmakers who hope this is the year a bill they're passionate about will pass. We're going to find out what they've done to clear a path. Today, which tax breaks are working and which aren't? Representative Casey Becker is a Boulder Democrat. She also represents parts of Jackson, Grand, Gilpin, and Clear Creek counties. Representative, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. And what is your goal with this bill as it relates to tax breaks? Yeah, I realized as a member of the Finance Committee that uh, we see a lot of bills that propose different tax credits, tax deductions, basically tax incentives for a whole variety of of uses for uh, businesses, ideas, economic development. And uh, a lot of them are great ideas, but we don't have a mechanism in law that um, creates a regular review of those to say, here's a tax credit, and um, after a certain number of years, let's make sure it's working. Let's make sure we understand the goal of it and that we're achieving that goal. Some of these tax breaks um, have been in law since the 1930s and have never really gone through a review to make sure, do they make sense? Especially since the recession, we've seen a lot of bills proposed to entice businesses, different business sectors to come to Colorado. So my goal was really to get some transparency and accountability around the tax breaks that we award. And of course, the tax break means the state is foregoing revenue in anticipation that more revenue might come in if you stimulate a certain business or industry. Uh, Give us a sense of how much money the state gives up, so to speak, with these tax breaks. Put the number into context for us, too. Sure. The estimate from the most recent numbers we have, which actually go back um, a couple years um, is about $5 billion in tax breaks, tax credits or deductions, tax exemptions, um, or tax refunds that um, are awarded to specific goals. 
So, yeah, nearly $5 billion. $5 billion. Let me say that last year's co-sponsor of this bill in the Senate, who's a Republican, Owen Hill of Colorado Springs, said uh, if all these tax breaks didn't exist, income taxes across the board could be cut in half. Now, let me say that's not the intention of your legislation, but it is one way to understand that $5 billion number. Uh, you said that a lot of these have been around for many, many years and had gone unreviewed. Um, are, is this a comprehensive review that you're proposing of all of them? And uh, are there a few examples you point to? Exactly. So there are a couple hundred in law right now. And what the bill would do is require an independent third party, the state auditor, to issue a report every seven years or so that looks at each of them and says, what is their goal? Are they meeting the goal? And it was important to me and the other bill sponsors that um, we looked at all of them. Some of them are economic development related, but some of them are human services related, and we didn't want to um, target specific tax credits, but, you know, look at each of them and say, which ones are really pulling their weight? Well, you say all, but as I understand it, last year's proposal protected about a dozen tax breaks from review, including uh, a break on food bought with food stamps, tax exemptions for materials used in iron and steel manufacturing. And uh, the one that got the most attention from senators and trade groups last year was for components used to make renewable energy. Uh, Here is Senator Kevin Lundberg during a hearing in April. If this is truly to be an analysis of all, quote, tax expenditures, I should think it should be a, a global view. Otherwise, I think you've already made your, drawn your conclusions before we even uh, call for the study. Does all mean all? All should mean all. If you were exempted out, what we had intended to do was um, some, there are several tax breaks for component parts, meaning things that only go into another product okay. that um, we we thought th- those are intended to avoid double taxation. And we thought we know as a state that we want to avoid double taxation. Do we need to take the time and money to review those? But um, if the bill, um, we do plan to bring the bill back, and that might be something that changes this year. All right. And let me say the component parts, meaning uh, not taxing something when it's all broken up at the early end and then taxing it when all the parts come together and it's a different product. Uh, Trying to avoid that double taxation is what you're saying. That's right. That's that's right. All right. So besides perhaps that, you would say that all all tax breaks would be on the table potentially to review in the bill that you'll submit next year. Yes. All right. Um, You know, that concern helped sink this legislation in the Senate last year after passing the House unanimously with one lawmaker abstaining. Uh, Some business groups, though, started to speak out against the measure. They thought it unfairly targeted businesses overall and uh, that some industries in particular, like oil and gas producers, might be unfairly targeted. Um, I'll say that you had the support, though, of other business groups. But is your goal with this ultimately to eliminate some of the tax breaks that the state gives out? The ultimate goal really is accountability and transparency. We need to show the all taxpayers of Colorado that uh, we are spending their money wisely. This bill doesn't eliminate any particular tax credit um, or tax deduction. It just um, shine some light on 
the value that they bring. If any lawmaker, given that information, would want to adjust the, the tax credit, they can always do that. And I suppose it could be possible even that some tax breaks are increased if you find that the review means that they're you know, bringing in a lot of business for the state or something. That's right. If there is an analysis that shows this is, has huge value to the state, um, that can be really helpful for lawmakers in making future um, budget allocations. And you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're also listening to a new series we've launched today about zombie bills. That's how some people refer to legislation that is brought up again and again uh, from session to session in the hopes that uh, this year will be the one that it passes. We are speaking with Democratic Representative Casey Becker of Boulder. Uh, she also represents parts of Jackson, Grant, Gilpin, and Clear Creek counties, and she would like a review of the state's tax breaks. And, you know, I, I hear that, Representative, and I think, well, gosh, doesn't the power, doesn't the state have that power already? Does it need a bill to, to be able to do this? You know, the uh, power doesn't exist in the state auditor to review them comprehensively. Any particular legislator can ask the audit committee to authorize a review of a particular issue. What was important to us is that we uh, are very even-handed in the review, that we look at them as a whole, um, that no one feels targeted. You know, it's not just about ones that are maybe for oil and gas or economic development or human services. Uh, You know, we are just seeing more and more tax credits being proposed, and so we need to get really a good handle on how we're spending that money. I suspect that one reason that is the case is because of Tabor. Uh, In other words, the state can uh, offer a tax break and not have to have a vote of the people to, in essence, forego that revenue, spend that money under the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Do you think that's at play here? That's absolutely right. Because we have, Tabor puts a limit on the amount of revenue that the state can collect. If you do a tax credit or a tax break to someone, it actually reduces the amount of state revenue that comes in. So instead of, you may not have the money to do a grant, but you can offer a tax credit instead. So as a tool, it's in this state, it's being used more and more because we're at that Tabor revenue cap. And all the more reason in your mind that they should be reviewed. Have other states done this and, uh, you know, found, gosh, we should throw out this one and double that one? Absolutely. Lots of states have been passing laws that create these comprehensive reviews of their tax breaks. So everywhere from Washington State to Virginia, Washington, D.C., and everywhere in between. And, um, You know, the idea, again, just being, let's get a good handle on um, whether these incentives, these tax incentives are achieving their goals. Do you have a Republican who's signed on to co-sponsor this bill? We are, um, we had it bipartisan in the House last year and bipartisan in the Senate, and we um, expect it to be that way again this year. I suppose this is something the JBC, the Joint Budget Committee, could also bring up. Uh, Would you be happy if your bill were co-opted and and simply um, absorbed uh, by the JBC? I'd be thrilled if the Joint Budget Committee wanted to um, promote this legislation or or carry it themselves, since um, they write the state's budget. These reviews do cost money, 
um, the state auditor would have to hire a couple people to do the analysis. So that's, that costs state money. I think it's money well spent. Uh, you know, you, you have to spend a dollar to save a dollar, um, or in this case, spend a dollar to possibly save, a, you know, $5 billion. But, um, and if the JBC uh, wants to support the bill and um, make sure it's in the budget, that would be great. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for being, for having me. Yeah, State Representative Casey Becker, a Boulder Democrat. She talked about her effort to pass a bill to audit tax breaks in the state. We'll be covering the fate of the measure in the coming session and more zombie bills to come in this series. Up next, a Boulder climate scientist who's back from the talks in Paris. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's get past the fanfare of the climate deal reached in Paris and move to brass tacks, like how the world measures and monitors carbon. Alexander McDonald directs NOAA's Earth System Research Lab in Boulder. He was part of the U.S. delegation to Paris, took part in several presentations there. One was about tracking carbon in the atmosphere. Sandy, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. I just want to introduce you to listeners, though, a bit first. I understand someone once told you some time ago that you shouldn't be a scientist. What profession did they suggest as an alternative? Well, I've gotten lots of advice over the years, but I uh, I actually uh, I think science is the right thing. I've loved science since I was a little kid. But they told you you might want to be a preacher because of how much you carry the climate change mantle. Is that correct? Yeah, I guess uh, back uh, quite a few years ago, I used to uh, uh, I used to go to the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab, which is our climate lab in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, and um, they really are the people that I think warned the world of how uh, dangerous greenhouse gases are. Uh, and they started in the 60s. Uh, so back in the late 80s, I used to give talks about it. And somebody said, well, you know, that talk, uh, you should have been a preacher with a tub to thump. <laughs> so <laughs> that was quite a few years ago. All right. Well, I imagine that the, the tub thumping continues in some ways. Uh, some of the pessimism about the climate deal is around the idea of measuring and observing carbon emissions and our collective ability to do so. Uh, This is an area of study at NOAA. Does that monitoring have to get better? Oh, absolutely. It has to get better. And, you know, I'm really proud of what we do in NOAA and in Earth System Research Lab. Uh, Jim Butler, who's the head of our uh, global monitoring division, uh, they run a network of seven observatories. They bring in literally thousands of uh, flasks and measure the amount of carbon in them. Hmm. Uh, and we're also working with satellites. Uh, and there's a new generation of satellites because if uh, if you really want to uh, manage something, you have to be able to measure it. So there's some really exciting future prospects. Okay. I'm fascinated by this. Flasks as a way of measuring carbon? I think of that sooner for whiskey. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think we're putting whiskey in them, but we, we have some very sophisticated instruments in Global Monitoring Division. So uh, I, I guess I have this mental picture, and I've seen it happen, actually. You know, they stand out there with a flask, and the ambient air goes in, mm. uh, and they ship it back to Boulder, and we hook it up to these machines, and we do a very careful and accurate analysis. So uh, we have you know, observations coming from ships uh, around the world and, and countries. Uh, countries work together very well on the global carbon observing network. Okay, then you said satellites might play a role in in tracking carbon. I, I'm not picturing how that would be the case. Uh, explain what, what role satellites might play. Okay, and I, uh, I'm uh, going to try not to get very technical, but I think it's just pretty exciting that at this stage when we need so much to understand what's happening that we have these powerful techniques. So one example of how a satellite could work is um, when you send down uh, a signal, uh, it goes down through the atmosphere or you might capture a signal bounced from the solar radiation. And uh, then you take a slightly different wavelength and the amount of something like carbon dioxide or methane or other things in the air, uh, since they're sensitive to a particular wavelength, you take the difference of those two oh. and you get the amount of uh, uh, carbon dioxide that that particular little uh, pulse of radiation went through. So a satellite going overhead can tell us, for example, the total amount of CO2 that it went through. Fascinating. And so I imagine that there's a lot of sophisticated technology in the developed world. Is this, and, and so much of the focus of Paris was on helping the developing world, is this technology that needs to be democratized in some way? Yes, absolutely. And I think that, that we really are working hard on this. Jim has been working with the Greenhouse Gas Observing System uh, with this idea that all of the countries can contribute. And I talked about the satellite because satellites give you that global coverage. But you always really need something down in the air, what we say is the in situ sensing. So our observatories and these measurements that we very accurately uh, measure, then we put that all together uh, into models that really show how uh, the carbon sources are occurring. And we care a lot about emissions such as those coming from power plants. Uh, but we also have these things called tall towers in the United States. And I remember uh, one of the scientists showing me a tall tower and it was uh, over a cornfield and the corn was pulling so much carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere as it grew that you could just see this big effect. Hmm. A, t a tall tower? It's a stack of somewhere? No, they're basically take advantage of, uh, for example, television towers or, uh, you know, others that are around. Uh, we also uh, have cases where uh, we have a, a pilot fly up and, and uh, uh, pull the air in. One of our scientists, Peter Tans, invented something called air core. And this is something you take up very high in a balloon and you drop it and it just floats down. And as it's floating down, it collects air. So then we know exactly how much was uh, in the air at each level. 
Well, let's wrap up with another subject of a presentation I think that you gave in Paris, and that's ocean acidification. The acidifying of the ocean, I think, is not something that gets as much attention, perhaps, as melting ice caps. Yes, and I think our understanding of this uh, over the last 15 years has come on strong. And it is uh, our uh, former NOAA administrator, Jane Lipchenko, called it the evil twin of global warming. Hmm. So uh, when we were at COP21, we were uh, showing things on science on a sphere. And the acidification of the ocean uh, is a really dangerous thing. If we don't do something about CO2, uh, all the really rich fisheries in our higher latitude oceans, think about off of Alaska, uh, you know, and the TV program and the cod fisheries and so on in the North Atlantic, uh, what happens is these are based on a food chain. At the bottom of that food chain are little critters, uh, even clams and stuff that need to get um, calcium carbonate out of the ocean. But what it shows is if we don't do something, it becomes what we call subsaturated, and a lot of the critters at the base of the food chain uh, really won't be able to exist. The ocean will be so corrosive, say, north of about 50 north. So you're pulling out the foundation, in a way, from the food chain. Just really briefly, Sandy, I know that you were at uh, the previous climate talk uh, in in Copenhagen, and you were at Paris. Did you sense a big difference in the urgency? Yes or no? Oh, I really did. And it did. was to me, it's very gratifying. Again, I as I said, I started uh, one of our scientists, Suki Manabi, at GFDL, uh, really got a lot of this going. And in a subway station in Paris, uh, they actually had his name and his equations on the wall huh. as an illustration of the science that went into it. And when we got to the COP21 meeting, to me, the excitement was palpable. It was just uh, really uh, clear that uh, the... Um, the world has to do something, and you could really feel it in the meeting. Thanks so much for being with us. You mentioned a GFDL, that's the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory. That's Sandy McDonald, Chief Science Advisor at NOAA in Boulder, who attended the Paris Climate Talks. Math is a subject most American students struggle with certainly compared to the rest of the world. A new math program is based on the notion that not all kids learn the same way or at the same pace. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine visits a Denver middle school that's piloting a program to make math personal. In my high school math class, when we got to permutations, combinations, and binomial theorems, I just hid in the back of the classroom, and I slipped further and further behind. Maury Middle School principal Noah Tonk says that's how thousands of math students fall through the cracks. And he explains to me why this happens. Next week, what are we going to study if we study Chapter 12 this week? Chapter 13. Chapter 13. And what do you have to know in order to know Chapter 13? Chapter 12. Chapter 12. So the kid who didn't do well in Chapter 12, that child is going to go on to 13 completely unprepared. The notion that all children learn at the same pace doesn't make sense to Tonk or to many teachers, like eight-year veteran Chris Brinster. You have 30 kids in a room teaching a lesson that addresses all 30 kids. It's nearly impossible, he says. What tends to happen is you have some kids ready to bolt ahead, 
but the class isn't ready. And then you have the kids who are struggling to keep up and hiding at the back of the classroom, like I did. You can't hide in the back anymore. That's Alicia Janes, the school's math director. You have to show every single day how much you learned. Enter Maury Middle School's new math program, aptly named Teach to One. Each student follows a customized program that lets them learn at their own pace and master each concept before moving on to the next one. I learn at a very slow rate sometimes. Last year, Celise Rodriguez was in a higher-level math class but struggled. Though she sailed through positive and negative integers, she needed more time with quadratic equations. I feel like now with this program, I am now able to do it at my pace and say if I am having trouble, I can slow down on my own and I can learn the way that I want to. Now in the eighth grade, she's back to being a top student. Teach to One takes advantage of today's technology to keep track of Celise online. Not only what she's learning, but what she's mastered or what she's having difficulty with. It then creates a program individually tailored to her needs. Celise shows me the screen on her laptop. And then we log in. There's a multicolored wheel. It looks like a CD. It's her personalized skill library. It lists all the math skills she's mastered and a current playlist, all the skills she's supposed to learn by a certain target date. Exterior angles, transversals, Pythagorean theorem, 3D shapes. The program tells Celise today she's working on slope and line intercept. It also tells Celise where she's going and what she'll be doing. She may start with a virtual lesson in one room. Let's pick two points. But with the clap of a hand... Yep, you're not stuck with the same teacher for 90 minutes. Instead, kids rotate among four teachers every 35 minutes in a new classroom. There, they'll solve problems in groups with kids working on the same skill, or move into a classroom where a teacher is leading an investigation into a real-world math problem. Make sure you're writing that reflection to The idea is kids learn better from different teachers and different methods. At the end of the math block, kids return to their homerooms to take a little test on the skill they learned that day. Math teacher Alyssa Janes explains. And then as soon as they click submit, they get feedback on which questions they got correct or incorrect and why it might be incorrect. Overnight, an algorithm spits out a student's schedule for the next day, perhaps working on the same skill in a different way or moving on. Teach to One isn't without frustrations. Jane says it took a lot of logistical work and training to set it up. Sometimes 8th grader Jeremy Schrieber says he misses a teacher's touch when it comes to tests. Because if you're like taking a test with a teacher, they can see if the problem, if you like forgot to carry the one, they can see that you understand how to do it and they'll still pass you. But Jeremy likes that the program lets advanced students like him work at a faster pace. Still, teacher Chris Brinster says he's seen the biggest change in attitude in his struggling students. Over these last couple months, I've seen a lot of kids that have gone from behaviors to avoid math to, okay, I can do this. And they're really, really proud when they get the little sparkly green on their screen and they get a trophy over here and they show you the screens at the end of the day. The program's in 28 schools across the country. But it's not cheap. It costs $100 per student plus support costs. Right now in Denver, that's covered by grants and the district. One study shows second-year academic gains for teach-to-one students far outpace student performance in regular classrooms. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. And still to come, does Colorado's original state song get its proper due? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Quick, what's Colorado's state song? It's this one, right? Rocky Mountain High, Colorado. 
If you picked Rocky Mountain High, you are half right. In 2007, lawmakers made John Denver's ode to his adopted state the second state song. The first is called Where the Columbines Grow. It was embraced by the Colorado General Assembly 100 years ago. Tis the land where the columbines grow Overlooking the plains far below While the cool summer breeze In the evergreen trees softly sing Where the columbines grow Well, our guest thinks that that second song deserves to be better known. Rob Nadelson is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Independence Institute. That's the free market think tank in Denver. And he has written a paper about the song's history. Rob, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, Ryan. How did a constitutional lawyer like yourself get interested in where the columbines grow? Well, probably what I do mostly in my constitutional work is constitutional history. I'm known fairly well as a founding-era historian, and I'm trained in history. And so uh, I became curious about this song and decided to apply my historical skills to uncovering more about it. I didn't go into it with the idea of thinking that it should be revived. It was just curiosity. Well, let's dig into the history that you dug into earlier. The man who wrote it is Arthur J. Flynn. You brought me a sepia-toned photograph of him in a Fantastic mustache. My, that's a mustache. Tell us about this guy. Yeah, his last name is actually Finn. That's F-Y-N-N. Pardon me. And, uh, Arthur, I'm right. so sorry. <laughs> At any rate, he um, uh, he was born in upstate New York, quite impoverished. And uh, he worked as a farm boy, but he was determined to get an education. And through great struggles, he managed to go to a classical academy for what we would call high school, went on to Tufts University. Um, with a degree in education, and then started looking for a job and landed a job in Central City, Colorado. I see. So he came out here and um, apparently liked Colorado because he stayed here all his life. He spent most of his years as a uh, uh, as a school administrator in Denver, but he was a bit of a polymath. He could do all kinds of different things, and music was one of them. Uh, he also became known nationally as a as an amateur. Archaeologist, in particular, particularly studying the uh, the life of the Pueblo Indians. Fascinating. Yes, lots of talents. And how did Arthur Finn write "Where the Columbines Grow"? How did he come to do that? Well, he uh, studied violin from a very early age. He used to play at dances in New York State, and he kept it up. And I, I, I gather from 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 what I read that in 1909 he was coming home with his wife uh, on an ocean liner from Europe, and he was he was homesick. And so he wrote the melody at that point. Later on, he wrote the words. He was, in addition to all the other things, he was uh, an amateur poet. And so he put the words to the music, and the result is a product that's really unusually sophisticated for a state song, I'll have to say that. Sophisticated. I mean, what's fascinating to me about it is the Colorado Assembly adopts it in, in 1915, right? And there's some grumbling because the original version never mentions the word Colorado. I mean, it certainly says the flowers that we have here, the Columbines, but it doesn't actually say the name Colorado. Yeah, I, I think there was some political stuff going on there. Uh, there was a, 
a favorite daughter of Colorado Springs who had her own song that called Colorado that people wanted to substitute for it. There are a number of states that have songs that don't mention the name of the state, including including Florida and 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 Kansas. Uh, he eventually went on and uh, six years later to write a verse that does mention the word Colorado, that has some of its own merits, but doesn't really fit with the rest of the song as something like putting a rat's tail on a squirrel. I see. Something of an appendage. Yeah. How did the uh, legislature then come to know about his song? I mean, it sounds like there were others that were vying to be the state song. You know, I haven't been able to track that down other than to say that he was a very prominent citizen in Denver. I mean, he was a mainstay of the Historical Society, of the Chamber of Commerce, um, of uh, a variety of other civic groups. And so it wouldn't be surprised if he had friend, friends in the legislature. It, in fact, two years later, when there was a move to decertify the song, he got a bunch of school kids and they came into the legislative chamber so that legislators could hear where the Columbines grow. Some the, from the, the mouths of babes. From the mouths of babes, okay. yeah. And they were they were completely snowed. I mean, they, they really liked the song. And I think one of the reasons for that is that it, it, it does appeal on a number of different levels. So they tried to repeal it? They tried to undo it? Yeah, there, there have been several efforts, one in 1917 and one in 1969, uh, a few others as well, one in the 40s, I think it was. It's never gotten very far because once people hear it uh, in a, in a, in a, in a well-done performance, it has a certain appeal. Well, why don't we hear a little bit more of it, shall we? We played the chorus earlier, but um, this is the first verse, and I should point out that it's a version by a singer named Rick Pickren, who's recorded several albums of state songs. Where the snowy peaks gleam in the moonlight Above the dark forests of pine and the wild foaming waters dash onward Toward lands where the tropic stars shine Where the scream of the bold mountain eagle Responds to the notes of the dove Is the purple-robed west The land that is best the pioneer land that I love. Colorado's first official state song there, Where the Columbines Grow. We're talking about it with constitutional law scholar Rick Nadelson, who has written a paper about this song, which was adopted officially a hundred years ago. Some lovely imagery in that first verse. Wild, foaming waters, the purple-robed west. I like that. Um, do you like this song? Yeah, I do. And and we don't have a lot of time to get into the nuts and bolts, but that first verse kind of illustrates some things. First off, the song consists of an of of uh, a series of images. There are visual images, there are auditory images, sensory images, and there are a lot of contrasts. So you'll see uh, uh, a contrast between the eagle and the dove, for example. The eagle and the dove contrast is interesting because the name of the state song, Columbine, comes from the Latin word for dove. The scientific name, aquilegia, is related to the Latin word for eagle, okay? And the columbine flower itself, the petals, 
Uh, on the outside, I've been compared to a collection of doves, but they end in eagle talons. That's how this so, connects to the flower. Yeah, okay. and in addition to that, you, in, the, in the second verse, which uh, there's a re- reference to nymphs, you put eagles and doves together in nymphs, and you've got a classical reference to the great Roman poem, The Metamorphoses by the poet Ovid. So there are all sorts of these little uh, subtleties all throughout the words, the music itself is unusual um, in its use of accidentals, that is to say, key changes. Okay. And, and, and um, again, much to re- revert the word, to the word I used earlier, much more sophisticated than the average kind of rah-rah state song. Yes, it's so different from many of the, the rousing state songs like Texas Are Texas or yes. On Wisconsin, right. I suppose. Now, here's one other, one other point that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Those of you familiar with John Denver's song know he's got a— uh, an environmental lament in it. Uh, he can't understand why they tear the mountains down to bring in a couple more. The second, the second verse of this song actually includes an, an environmental lament as well. It portrays a potential future in which nature has been denuded. Okay, huh. but fortunately, the Columbine blooms on. Do you find that prescient? Do I find it prescient? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if it's prescient. Um, let's just say that uh, he obviously had some of the same love for the environment that most Coloradans have. Yeah, it's a reflection of who he was, Arthur Finn, the writer of Where the Columbines Grow. Why don't we do just a little bit of comparing and contrasting to the second state song that was adopted sure. you know, much later, Rocky Mountain High. Well, first of all, what, what did you think when it was adopted? As a second state song. Are we the only state with a second state song? Um, I know, know Ohio. We, there are states with more than one. Uh, yeah. They'll call one the state song, and the other the state anthem or the state march. Ohio has a state rock song. Yeah. Hang um, on, Sloopy. But that's not its official <laughs> state song. And and I should I should hasten to say here that, that there is a difference in the standing of the two. Okay. Um, Where the Columbines Grow is state song by, the re, by reason of state law. And there's actually a law which says that it is supposed to be used on all appropriate occasions. So if there's an inauguration, for example, they're supposed to play or to sing the state song. And that is not true of Rocky Mountain High. That's not true of Rocky Mountain High. Rocky Mountain High was adopted by joint resolution, and so it does not have the force of law. To a former law professor like me, I suppose (laughs) those kinds of distinctions are important. I, I find I find where the Columbines grow much more subtle. I, I like uh, Rocky Mountain High. I, I like it very much, but I find where the Columbines grow somewhat more subtle and certainly more singable to those with average voices. And so, on the centennial of the state's uh, adoption, uh, the song's adoption—that is, uh, where the Columbines grow—do you hope that it? Its profile is raised. Do you hope that it's played at more functions? I mean, do you think there's a kind of dearth of its performance? Um, I could think the quick answer to that is yes. Um, I didn't go into this study thinking that, but I certainly became converted to it. I think Coloradans have a gem here, which uh, has kind of accumulated dust over the year over the years, and it needs to be unearthed or undusted again, uh, because I think it, I, I think the song has a lot to offer. And would you challenge then? I don't know musicians listening to get creative with it. I mean, could you hear it in different styles? You know, there's a punk rock version on the web. I don't know if I would encourage people to get that creative with it. <laughs> I, I think you know one of the things that you learn as a as a historian is you have to take each era on its own terms, and you can't 
you can't rip something out of its era, its era and you can't take a song and pretend it's what it's not. So sure, put your put your thumbprint on it, but don't press too hard. Is there more you'd like to learn about the song? I guess uh, there's a, there's information I'd like to know, which I don't uh, think I'll ever uncover. Finn, for example, Finn actually published two other songs, and this is distinctly superior to the other two. One was published earlier, one was published later. And I, I sometimes wonder if there were influences or assistance that he might have gotten that made this song uh, what, it, what it is. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And I hate to say this on your behalf, but we have the punk rock version of Where the Columbines Uh-oh. Grow. <laughs> so we're going to listen to that. Rob Nadelson is Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies at the Independence Institute. His paper about Where the Columbines Grow is called Reclaiming the Centennial State's Centennial Song. And here's that version by the rock band Pinhead Circus. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio.